Welcome to the Generative Biology Revolution, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. Generative biology is a revolutionary approach to drug discovery and development that leverages machine learning and AI to design novel protein therapeutics. It holds the potential to enhance the speed and efficiency of discovery. In this series, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President at Amgen, discusses how generative biology is transforming drug discovery to make it more predictable, shorten timelines, and increase success rates of bringing life-saving medicines to patients who need them most. To build better biologic drugs, researchers need to understand exactly how amino acid building blocks interact with one another and fold into functional proteins. This knowledge provides insights into how to engage a drug target or develop an optimal therapeutic. Determining a protein's structure is a laborious process in the wet lab, but thanks to machine learning, scientists can now use various algorithms to predict structure. In this episode, I talk to Mike Nohaley, Chief Scientific Officer at Generate Biomedicines. Since early 2022, Amgen and Generate Biomedicines have been collaborating to discover and create protein therapeutics across several therapeutic areas and multiple modalities, including conventional and bispecific monoclonal antibody drugs. We discussed the challenge of predicting a protein structure from its sequence and the steps that drug developers are now taking to create novel structures with therapeutic potential using the principles of generative biology. Hey Mike, it's really great to have you here today. We're going to talk about the relationship between protein sequence and, and protein structure. Proteins have functions. They either can serve as scaffolding or they can carry out processes inside of cells. You could think of proteins like tools, like a hammer or a screwdriver or a, a plier. The shape of the tool really demarcates what it can do, what underlies the function. So given the importance of shape, of structure to proteins, what are the major ways scientists determine protein structure? The initial method, x-ray crystallography, where you take your protein and you crystallize it in a very regular array, and then you scatter x-rays off it, and you determine what the structure is from that. About 30 years ago, it became possible to add heteronuclear multidimensional NMR to that, which gave some new information. That's a tricky technique to make work for very large proteins, but it, it shows you more the dynamics of the protein. And then the new kit on the block is cryoelectron microscopy. And that's really exciting because it's very fast. You don't have to put them in crystals. You just put the proteins in their native state on a plate, and then you fast freeze them. And you just use a transmitting electron microscopy to take pictures of them. It's been really revolutionary in the speed and pace at which you can get new structures. But all three techniques have their place. One of the grand challenges in all of biology has been this protein folding problem where you try to understand how you get from the linear sequence of amino acids that comprise a protein 
to its three-dimensional structure. And you describe what I would call the wet techniques for doing that, methods like NMR, crystallography, and cryo-EM. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could ditch all that fancy machinery and do this in a computer? The problem is, at each position in a protein, you could have any of the 20 different amino acids. Even in a small protein of, say, 100 amino acids, each amino acid could then adopt a different conformation relative to the amino acid that preceded it and that follows it, so that not only could you have any of the one of the 20 amino acids at each position, but then each amino acid can be at a different angle relative to the adjacent amino acids. Computationally, that leads to an enormous number of possible configurations for our small 100 amino acid protein. Can you elaborate on that computational complexity of understanding how sequence translates into structure? The problem blows up computationally extremely rapidly to insane places. So I'll give you an example. I was working on a protein that had a partially baryotryptophan. It's W on the 20 amino acids. And it's got the largest side chain. It's very, very long. It has a couple of rings. I was struggling because that first angle coming off the backbone if you just moved it a little bit, it moved the atom, the hydrogen at the very end of the tryptophan, a huge amount. And you're trying to computationally move that just a tiny little bit. Well, then you want to recalculate the whole protein. So it blows up to orders of X to the hundredth, X to the 200 very rapidly. And there's no computer, maybe the size of a planet that can calculate that fully. It blows up on you in some computationally intractable way. You've described an atomist or geometric approach that is rooted in bond lengths and angles to computationally predict the protein structure. I understand there's another in silico approach, an analogy-based approach, where scientists discern a protein's unknown structure by comparing it to related proteins whose structures have been previously solved. Mike, can you share with us how that works? We've made some traction with analogy-based approaches. So you look at things and say, these are in the same family. Let's thread it into that and try by analogy to get something that works. Obviously, it doesn't allow you to design new things particularly well necessarily, but it does sometimes allow you to pull out things off primary sequence and at least get a sense of what they're going to look like. There's all kinds of ranges in between fully atomistic and those analogy-based methods. There's a new kid on the block with a new computational technique that is neither the analogy-based nor the fully atomistic, which is modern machine learning, which has been pretty revolutionary in the capability to do this. There's been tremendous excitement in the drug discovery field over the advancements in computational protein structure prediction. How did this come about, and what is your take on it? Sometime around 2010, there was a huge change in the computer science field as modern machine learning, convolutional neural network sort of came to the fore. Those techniques allow you to take very complicated data sets and find patterns in them in a computationally tractable way. And that's changed image recognition and shopping and speech to text, natural language processing. That has been now successfully applied to this protein folding problem. I have the primary sequence. I know what those sequence of amino acids are, but what I want to know is what does it fold to? So these techniques set new standards that had never been met before. And now people are trying them on all sequences that are out there and they're producing databases. We just took everything that's ever been sequenced and we're folding all of it. Here's what it is. 
Uh, I think it'll be really great for docking small molecules, things that have been hard to crystallize. It will be a real revolution, but it is just starting. So if I go in into one of these programs, RosettaFold, AlphaFold, with a sequence where there's not a pre-existing structure, so an algae is not possible, or there's not a, a, a homologous protein for which there's a pre-existing structure, what percentage of the time do they get the structure right? The overwhelming percentage of the time, they get pretty close. They'll give you expectations around different pieces. Like, we're really confident of the beta barrel, but this big loop on the end, we're a little less confident on. Now, the one downside is often that big loop on the end is the thing you care about the most because it's the thing that actually binds. And that's often the place that has the lowest confidence because it's just the least constrained by the dynamics. You get at least a reasonable quality prediction that you can start with. Can you give us some insight into how people are using folding algorithms to understand how proteins identify interacting partners and understand how two different proteins might interact with each other? One way to think about modern machine learning is it takes in an enormous quantity of data and it abstracts out a very complicated set of pattern recognition tools. And the initial tools were for how do you fold a protein? And now people are saying, okay, well, let's build larger data sets that have these multimeric proteins in them and let's learn the rules of binding. Let's see if we can predict which ones bind others. Now, part of the challenge there is, you know, you're going to try a lot of partners. So then you've got to be extremely efficient in your computation. If you're trying to take a single sequence to a single structure, you can spend a day of computation time on that computation. If you want to look at several hundred possible interactions, you cannot spend a day per interaction to see what's going on there. You have to have something that's a lot faster. Obviously, if you already know they interact and you just want the details of the interaction, then that computational thing falls away. But even there, you need examples of these multimeric proteins to do that. And there's just fewer structural examples out there than individual proteins, but people have been pushing hard to try to figure out how does that work? What are the rules? What can we learn? And eventually, of course, how can we design our own? So is the protein folding problem solved? It is partially solved. There's still refinement. We will get better as more data comes forward. The protein folding problem is actually a predictive problem. I have a sequence. What does it fold to? And that's interesting. But what we're really interested in is, I have a structure I want or a problem. Give me sequences that fold to it. You know, I spend most of my time actually on that second gender problem. I know you're itching to talk about starting with a structure that you conceive of and then trying to figure out what amino acid sequence would give me this structure. Can you explain for me, what does generative biology mean to you? So it is back to this ability to not just say, hey, this is what's in nature. Can we explain it or if we find a new thing in nature, we can predict what it's going to do. Can we get enough control that we can say, here's a problem that we think would be neat to solve biologically. We want to interdict a particular target inside a cancer cell or whatever. We're going to create something brand new that's never been seen before and actually generate a new biological entity that has the functional characteristics. I actually think of it as going from sequence space to function space. How are you thinking about applying these principles of generative biology? Where do you see Generate Biomedicines going? We want to use the new ability to generate novel biological entities, particularly in this case proteins, to start considering new problems that have never been solved before, maybe 
levels of molecular engineering and complexity that have never been seen. So we really want to pioneer the ability to, to generate these new things. And that capability will open up areas we haven't even considered. We see the opportunity to pioneer the ability to work at a scale that just hasn't been possible before. If you're making antibodies, you're running it through a humanized mouse immune system or something, and it gives you what it gives you. It's nice about the computers, you can say, I want what I want. If you look at the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, you'd think there are thousands of places to bind antibodies there, but you only bind antibodies to a few places. Some of the really interesting places you want to hit are not the places that the immune system binds to, and I don't think that's random. The ability to say computationally say, well, I'm going to go to a highly conserved domain that the vertebrate immune system doesn't give to you. I'm going to be able to optimize it exactly the way I want. The binding, the the half-life, the immunogenicity, all those things allows you to dream completely differently about what you can do for interdiction. It's not just proteins. You can imagine interactions of all kinds of molecular entities in complicated ways that allow you to do things you couldn't do before. What do you see as the low-hanging fruit right now for your business? Where do you see the greatest opportunities for applying generative biology to problems that exist today that you can solve in in a short time frame and really bring value to to the development of new medicines? There's a lot of modalities in proteins right now, monoclonal antibodies, biospecifics, other stuff. So working in monoclonals, which are well understood, gives you a lot of the lower hanging fruit. There's a lot of data to learn from. And then there's lead generation and lead optimization. If I start with lead optimization, there's a lot of antibodies that are good, but they're not great. Maybe you want them to bind 10 times more because you want their half-life to be longer. Or they're good, but they're giving you immunogenicity. And so you can't make them into drugs because patients make antibodies to the antibodies and wipe them out. And so we've had good success in optimizing proteins very rapidly in a small number of months around these properties and taking things that were maybe marginal or not even clinically valid and saying, let's make this into a really great antibody and let's do it relatively quickly and make something that is now clinically useful. And lead generation, where you say, hey, maybe there's an epitope that hasn't been hit. Say, you know, I have to hit this protein in a very specific way to turn it up. And I'm struggling to get that out of the mouse. The computer can say, give me a thousand designs only to that place. And so we've had some good success hitting new epitopes. What do you think the field is going to look like? I mean, you've seen how it's progressed in a year. How do you think it's going to look like in 10 years? First of all, I was surprised that this technique works so well for protein folding and design. I didn't think it would, actually, if you'd asked me several years ago. I think in 10 years, this is simply going to be the way that at least on the protein side and small molecule side, things are done. It's all going to be computationally driven. You're going to need a tight wet lab, dry lab, where you do a design and test it to make sure it's doing what you think you're doing. I'm not so sure you're going to see humanized mice and yeast displays used in the same way that they're used now, because I think this is going to completely replace it. And what has struck me is if I were a young scientist, I would go super hard at the computational and data side. And I would say, I don't have to be a data scientist. I don't have to be a computational biologist. But boy, I better understand what it can do and where it's at, because I should be trying to exploit it everywhere I can. Given how powerful these techniques have been, I should be on the cutting edge of applying it to my problem. Well, Mike, this has really been 
just a phenomenal discussion. I always enjoyed talking to you. You bring a lot of passion, you bring a lot of excitement, you bring a lot of vision. I really look forward to our collaboration with your group at Generate, and I look forward to watching what you guys are able to create as you forge ahead building up this new science. So thanks so much for joining me today. Ray, it's been great. Thank you. And I really look forward to our collaboration and let's see what we can do. Thank you for listening to the Generative Biology Revolution. And thanks again to Mike Nohaley, Chief Scientific Officer at Generate Biomedicines. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Generative Biology Q&A webinar discussion on July 20th, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. Machine learning and AI are ushering in a new era for predicting protein structure in drug discovery research. In the next episode of the Generative Biology Revolution, we'll talk with David Baker from the Institute for Protein Design at the University of Washington about the future of protein design. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen, All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.